Hello, Jill here, hoping that you'll consider making a small donation to the ongoing production efforts and support this podcast on our website, tsctalks.com. There's various places to press the donate button and use PayPal. We'd appreciate your support. We've produced 50 episodes with more on the way, quality content that's affecting change in our TSC and broader communities. So please consider making a donation. Would really appreciate it. Hello. Welcome or welcome back to TSC Talks, the podcast where we talk about tuberous sclerosis complex and other related issues. My name is Jill Woodworth and I am your host. Thanks so much for tuning in. I wasn't sure how I was going to put together today's episode with the infamous Deborah Moritz to talk about her experience with the TSC diagnosis as well as early research on Affinitor at the March on the Hill, government advocacy. She's the chair of the TS Alliance of Arizona. She is also a member of the TS Alliance Government Relations Committee. She's been involved with the TS Alliance since the very beginning, pretty much. Uh, participated in the earliest marches where there were just a few people driving there in their car. I loved hearing about the history of this, as well as you know the government advocacy that's been built up over the years. The process of that was fascinating. Her discussion of her experience with her son, getting him into the trial for Affinitor and how influential that trial was on the outcome or the outcome of that trial was on the approval of Affinitor for tuberous sclerosis complex. So there's a whole lot in this episode. I thought initially I'd break it into two episodes. I'm going to put it up as one. However, I'm going to mark the chapter about 28 minutes in where we kind of switch to more talking about the march. So if you want to skip over the first part and listen to it later and listen to the part on the march, however you want to do it, it's a fabulous episode. So grateful to Deborah for coming on and talking to me and putting up with my bad phone quality and hanging in there. So without further ado, I'm going to turn it over. Take it away, Deborah. I have Deborah Moritz, and you are from, are you from Phoenix? Uh, no, I'm in Scottsdale, Scottsdale Arizona. Arizona. I'm from Wisconsin. Oh, really? You've been a volunteer with the TS Alliance, um, any levels for a long time, and you are probably the government advocacy expert. Yeah. I would say, yeah. among an expert in many other areas. So, yeah, just tell me a little bit about how you ended up getting involved with TSC. Oh, for sure. So like a lot of people, I didn't volunteer to have TSC enter my life. There was no choice about it. Griffin began having infantile spasms when he was five months old and uh, his were really catastrophic. Really? How so? (laughs) He was having hundreds of spasms a day. Uh, He was just never comfortable it went from zero to hundreds, like overnight. And we got his diagnosis fairly uh-huh. rapidly, even after the emergency room doctor sent us home telling me it was all about teething pain. Really? We were- <laughs> That's a new one. 
Haven't heard that uh, one yet. Yeah, well, he figured it's a first-time mom. I could probably tell her anything, and she'll oh, believe gosh. it. Yeah. But we didn't, so we videotaped yep. it and took it to the pediatrician, and uh, all the, the doctors in the practice all looked at it, and they said, well, we don't know exactly what it is, but it sure is looking neurological to mm-hmm. us. And so they immediately sent us to the children's hospital, and we got a neurologist who just coincidentally had done his entire residency work in neurocutaneous disorders. So he really? looked, yeah. <laughs> so he looked at Griffin and saw the white patch of hair, saw the infantile spasms, and said, "I'm pretty sure I know what it is, but we'll do all the testing." And by five o'clock that night, he was clinically diagnosed with tuberous sclerosis. I called the it was then the NTSA. Mm-hmm. Uh, I called them that night. I mean, it's five o'clock in Arizona and I called the Eastern office and still there was someone that answered the phone and I said, okay, I don't know what this is. What do we do? Where do we go next? And there wasn't a lot to do 20 right. years ago. Yes. It was a lot about wait and see. And well, if this happens, it's not. But Vigabitrin was mentioned uh, and it wasn't yet available in the United States. Mm-hmm contacted a little study that was going on at UCLA, but he didn't qualify for that for some reason. And so instead we went across the border into Mexico. Yeah. We got the Vigabitrin. And it How was quick fabulous. did it take you a while to get it? Monday to Tuesday. Oh, you got were right on it. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we're going to Doesn't Mexico. surprise me, but I just had to ask. <laughs> well, I I mean, there, there are angels always. Yes, absolutely. In the story. And so we were able to get the drug immediately from sources locally, but then drove to Mexico, got our own supply, reimbursed mm-hmm. everybody, that thing. It worked for one day. Uh, oh. It was it was fabulous. Brought his seizures to a halt, but they came back even worse. And no matter mm-hmm. how much we cranked up the Vigabitrin, it wasn't stopping them. And so ultimately, and he was having other seizure types already, in addition to the infantile spasms. I mean, really, when the neurologist said he's got a catastrophic seizure disorder, he was probably understating the the case because it was a mess. And so uh, we ultimately went the ACTH injection Mm -hmm. route. And even with that, I mean, he had to have higher dose, longer course of treatment than they'd done before, but it ultimately stopped the infantile spasms. You're the first person that I've talked to that has had that level of success with the ACTH, mostly because people get on Vigabitrin and then usually somehow yeah. they end up that going that route. But wow. Yeah, I mean, we were throwing everything we had at it mm-hmm. because, it, I mean, at the back of my mind, it was all, I mean, we even explored immediate surgery. Really? But in those days, uh, that was a cautious Yes. group of, of neurosurgeons that would deal with kids with TS and uh, they weren't sure that they would treat infantile spasms. So that oh, yeah. wasn't, that wasn't going anywhere. Um, but so we got those stopped, but he continued to have plenty of other mm-hmm. kinds of seizures challenging him to, at one point he was in a helmet. His seizures were so violent and we continued to, I mean, again, it was when the world was not yet digitized quite like it is now. So, I was dragging the kid and his films and his files across the country, oh, coast to boy. coast. Were you? Uh, to find a surgeon, anybody that would address it. And after you were enough- sure that, well, as much as anybody can be sure, 
um, you were sure that that was the best route? Well, I wasn't sure. I was just, if the medications weren't working, it was like, what else? You know, know. I'll go, I'll go to Sedona and use the crystals if that's going to be what works. (laughs) No, seriously. I, I'm right there with you. I'm just kind of think, asking you your thought process because I'm curious. hmm. But yeah, I get it. Whatever it, it takes. It, it was leave no stone unturned, evaluate all options, try to get the best thing possible for him. And ultimately, there there was no surgeon at that point in time that would step forward. Really? And so we continued to work with medications one way or the other, try to make it better. You know, he was able to, you know, begin walking and, you know, begin doing things despite averaging 30 seizures wow. a day. That's crazy. I mean, that was our good place. <laughs> Literally, when I look back historically, 30 seizures a day was the really good spot that we'd been able to get to in control. They weren't all violent seizures. Uh-huh. Some of them were, were short ones, you know, so he'd have some better days than others. Some days, you know, wake up and really bad seizure and knock him out, you know, and that day was junk after that. So you um, had to pretty much your days revolved around caring for that level of uh, seizure activity. Well, the poor kid had a full-time job by the time he was a year old going to therapies. Right. (laughs) Right, Uh, yeah. It became a point of figuring out, you know, when did he have any kid time? Because he was spending his time either going to doctors or uh, having interventional therapies or, you know, his crazy mom thinking up something else for him to do to fill his day. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we kept it busy, but always, always looking for something else. You know, he, he didn't oh, sleep yeah. much, so I didn't sleep yeah. much, uh, and that gave me plenty of time to search what there was on the <laughs> on internet. the internet. I remember those days. Yeah. Yep. Yep. There's listservs, and ah, uh, when I first found like other people that I could talk to about what was going on, I just it was amazing. Well, that was the thing. When Griffin was diagnosed, that very night when he was diagnosed, I asked his neurologist, I said, okay, first of all, how do I take care of him? What are our next steps? And can you introduce me to an adult that has this disorder? Because mm-hmm. I like to know where I'm going with things. Yes, so absolutely. I, I hear I you. to know. What yeah. is it? And he was like, well, you take care of him just like you would any other baby. Next steps are we'll just wait and see. And yep. I got the we'll same answers. And, we'll try to get seizure control. And no, I'm sorry, I don't know anyone else in the area with TS. Call Nord or the NTSA. And so from Nord, I did get three people. From the NTSA, uh, they were going through a reorganization uh-huh. of the, the regional volunteers right. at that time. So there was someone um, in Arizona that I, I finally got email contact with. And, uh-huh. But as far as physically going to meet people and having a path on where we were going, it just wasn't around. Yeah, I remember that. You're bringing so, me back, and I'm trying to <laughs> – I don't even – like, it's hard for me to think of that now because it's almost like the online world is as active as the actual real world. Sure, vast differences. Like yeah. Griffin's 21. Yes. You know, it's, it's two decades of progress and pushing, so a lot has happened. Yeah, I agree. And 
So as far as moving forward, how is he doing today? And you've kind of shared some of the challenges, but give me a little picture of the bigger challenges and successes from your perspective. Um, Well, early on, it was just finding people that knew anything or people I could talk to, you know, so I talk about Griffin having his full-time job going to therapy. So I would quiz everybody in the waiting rooms. (laughs) Did you really? Well, sure. I You're really outgoing. Is that not, natural? Not, no, I just need to know stuff. Yes, no, I know. I've had to overcome my <laughs> wallflower just, yes, to handle it. Yeah, so, I mean, I would ask people. And so, you know, I mean, there's epilepsy groups and there's autism groups. Yes. So, okay, I could join in with those people and get a little flavor of of some help or some resources. But then if I, you know, let it slip, well, you just have epilepsy, you know, that was the wrong thing to say. (laughs) And I understand that, but sometimes it just pops out. Like, okay, I'm looking at a bigger picture here. Not that I have more problems than you. I just have a different set of them. Right. But so those were great resources in some respects, at least to get some connections with people. And like I said, the NTSA, that's now the TS Alliance, was reorganizing. And so I just said, you know, I'll do a newsletter or whatever. I just wanted to get my hands on more emails and more phone numbers Uh of people that I could contact Mm -hmm. and just ask and could we do something? Like what was this like for you kind of thing? Yeah. And so the TSC Talk listserv was great because – that was people, that was international. And I could sit in the room next to my son's nursery and real time chat with people mm-hmm. about what was going on. So that was really very helpful. And I met a lot of, virtually met a lot of people there that gave me some perspective because there were adults. I mean, actually it was run by an adult with TSC. So right. that was, was a great Hall part of that. Eventually Keith was in there. Yeah. Because I think I met him there. Yeah, Lisa Trainer ran it. Lisa and Pat Trainer had it going. And, uh, yeah, and so met people. And Pat and Chris Sheffield in California spearheaded a book. And so they wanted people to write stories. And so this was, Griffin wasn't even nine months old yet, but I was going to write the story of uh-huh. his life. And I look back at that now and it's like, wow, I found a, somewhere a really strong place to say in those early months that I was going to advocate for this kid forever, if that's what it took. Mm -hmm. Yes, a very early strong place. Yeah, so, I mean, you just put that on the old vision board uh, to re-remind myself as we go forward. Mm -hmm. But so dealing with the seizures was one, and he was early identified as having high risk for a Sega in a Mm -hmm. really bad place. So we... Scanned him every six months. Yes. You know, that was, that was the only way to do anything about it. And things were going good. And so we went years without that being a problem. So it was kind of coasting along because mm-hmm. my kid's an overachiever. So you get a list of the 10 worst things that can happen in TS, you know, and he likes to score a hundred percent on that. That's <laughs> helpful, isn't it? <laughs> and so, you know, like, okay. What's, I was looking at a checklist and trying to say, okay, what can I cross off that I don't have to worry about? You know, eventually, I mean, the heart uh, was probably the easiest one to finally get rid of. And things just wouldn't get crossed off the list. But I was thinking maybe the Segas would be the one that we could dodge. But mm-hmm. instead, I mean, he, in one six-month 
time period of scanning, he went from let's wait and see what might happen to he's got hydrocephalus, he's got bilateral multinodular sagas, and surgery is not looking like a good choice. Oh, devastating. <laughs> it was horrible. I can't. Um, oh, yeah, because we did get the surgery for a sega that was causing hydrocephalus. So, yeah, yeah. Well, it's like you know, I mean, because here I've got the Bureau Neurological Institute is is a great neurosurgical institute, world renowned, mm-hmm. and so to sit at a table with those surgeons and oh, their ultimate Deborah. confidence, and they say, you know, we're a hundred percent confident that we can't get it all in one surgery. It's going to need multiple surgeries. Oh. It's likely to grow back. We're probably going to damage the ventricles, so he's going to need a shunt. And I'm envisioning all of this with my nonverbal autistic son who has 30 seizures a day. It's like there's going to be a little management problem. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) But fortunately, I had a great epileptologist at that time, and he listened to everything I said Uh all the time. Really? You know, with a great epileptologist. Epileptologist. Yes. And uh, I said, okay, I read this rat study out of UCLA. And I think Cincinnati is doing a trial. Can we ask them what they're doing and if it might be something that we could maybe do here or, or is there an alternative? And he said, fine. So he packed everything up, shipped it to Cincinnati that night. And what was scary was the Dr. Dr. Franz at Cincinnati called me the next day and said, could I bring Griffin to the trough the next day? Wow. So I knew that it was even worse than I was imagining. Oh, well, you know, I'm still back at the, in the room with you where you got, had all those people telling you that they couldn't do anything. Yeah. I mean, it's like, That's, okay, I'm just so, kind of like, yeah. So it's just like, Okay, if surgery is the treatment, but here you are telling me that the treatment is not the best right. choice. Like, hmm, yeah, so that's well. a big roadblock. Yep. So then to to be invited to be in the trial, that's a well, little. Well, it was it was a twenty five person trial that they were doing. It was still it was a phase two clinical trial, so uh-huh. it, it was early. But he said, "Yeah, can you bring him right away?" And they're like, "Okay." So we flew there. And he went through all the, the initial qualifying criteria or whatever and was entered into the trial as uh, patient number 25. So then it's a waiting process because you're taking the medication and you've got to give it time to act. But I was hopeful. And, of course, I'd made my list of the 25 things I was going to chart about him and his behavior. 25. <laughs> On, <laughs> I was like, I have to measure everything. I I needed to know that I was doing everything possible to mm-hmm. make this successful so mm-hmm. that the only variable that they had to look at would be the drug. And he began to That's change. That's amazing. Right, he began to change right away. Uh, sent him back to school and I didn't tell them that he was on anything different. And uh, yeah, they started sending notes like, wow, Griffin's doing this. He's doing that. He's doing this. I'm like, huh. hmm, hmm. So I just kept making the notes. And so we had to wait. 30 days before we could go back and then go back and get the a dose adjusted. And it was a lot of flying back and forth from wow. Phoenix to Cincinnati, but ultimately wow. worth it because when he had his first MRI scan after starting the drug, he had dramatic improvement. Oh and man, that must've been a sweet moment. 
This is the story. We fly in Cincinnati. It's February. It's the worst storm, snow storm they've had. Of course it is. The hospital is closing down, telling non-essential people to stay home. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and I'm going, hmm, are we going to even get an MRI? Ah. But it was really cool because we stayed at the hotel closest to uh-huh. the clinic, and it turned out that Dr. Stephen Roach, another TSC specialist, happened to be at the hotel. and. He approached me right away and said, oh, your son has tuberous sclerosis complex. And I looked at him and I said, well, actually, you've seen his brain already. <laughs> because wow. years ago, years ago, I had brought it to you to ask a question. But anyway, so we went, we had a great MRI. We're going to continue on medication. Side effects were manageable uh-huh. uh, things. He had such a dramatic before and after photo that his images were actually published in the New England Journal of Medicine Were they? along with the study results. And that was the study that got the provisional approval of a Finitor. By Is the it FDA. really? But yeah, fill in all that stuff. No, yeah. No, no. I mean, well, I think it's important thing. that people, you know, make the connection with you, you know, the things that you've done over the years. And it's just, you know, it just gives people hope. And I don't know, too, like just that piece of information that his brain was part of that whole change and that's affected my own kids you know they've all been been the beneficiaries of well we get sirolimus because that's what mass health pays for but you know it's helped so that's really cool yeah i mean i I kind of pushed it that the 25 people that participated in that trial they got recognition by the ts alliance kind of like as a a group of volunteers of the year as oh really the the people that kind of took a chance um on a clinical trial because in the early in those days there weren't that many trials that involved patients with tsc it it Uh, wasn't you know so but anyways it was all self-interest uh motivated there i needed something that would help griffin and well, of griffin, course griffin did great and so yeah he has a really dramatic brain and in fact at the march on the hill right after that initial scan i think dr franz was our keynote luncheon speaker and he put up a, a slide of mri images and it was griffin's brain and literally 70% of the room <laughs> turned and looked at me because I had plastered that kid's brain oh my. images all over uh. Facebook. <laughs> so more of them knew him by his brain than his face. <laughs> that is so funny. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it still brings me to tears sometimes thinking I bet. about that. I mean, that's just uh, a lot of grit and determination, Deborah. Nah. I yeah. Mean, it, it, it was a good result. It, I mean, just yeah. Even this year, a friend and fellow advocate, as she was getting ready for the March on the Hill, said, I'm packing Griffin's brain. I got his pictures. <laughs> <laughs> so it's sunk in, uh, literally. Well, he's got a dramatic image. You know, now there's, there's good, you know, following lots of great stories and other dramatic images. Yes, that, true. That can fill in there. It's so true. wonderful. It is. It's amazing. That. It's hopeful. But, yeah, it was one of those things that we were just on the cusp of it changing. That's when mTOR inhibitors mm-hmm. became a thing, and more and more so. It was just a right place, right time, yep. probably. That's why no surgeons would touch him. His brain had to be saved for that moment. 
when it was his time to shine. And you can look back and put string it together, but in those moments, it it's so tough. Oh yeah, <laughs> when people would say, "Why are you Why are you giving him this drug?" It's like yeah. oh, these little these little rats at UCLA had really great results on it. <laughs> it is so right. I put my daughter on the ketogenic diet, and people thought I was nuts, like I was starving her, you know, and it didn't work. But then it, she came off it, and her seizures stopped, which uh-huh. is the weirdest thing. That was one of two patients that that happened with. But yeah, she's had seizures over the years, but nothing like she had before she went on the diet. You know, so I get, yeah, there's these things that happen that kind of like you look back and you're like, oh, well, if I had known. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, and that's why, I mean, well, I think why people who have to live with TSC or or have loved ones with TSC, why we seek our community is because then there's less explaining necessary. Absolutely. That you just (laughs) nailed it. Yeah, it's so hard to really feel like you can relate to people. And then, you know, you start to explain it and, and then they're traumatized or they stick around, you know, depending. Yeah. yeah. So point. that was probably a good turning point for him. And then, mm-hmm. as, you know, in, in terms of a lead up to advocacy on Capitol Hill, I had been going to Washington already before uh-huh. that turning point because of Griffin. Because, you know, his life was messed up because of TSC mm-hmm. and nobody was doing anything. Nobody was, nobody was yes. doing enough about it. And it was just, <sighs> it was just too miserable ya. a situation. But at that point in time, when he had that moment, then it became, I was going to Washington DC for Griffin, not because of him, but for him because mm-hmm. there were things that could be changed there was progress that could be made and we just needed to fuel it with the right research yes so it, so it became changed. it switched yes and i can i can relate to that a little bit you know i think as i've started to get involved and then especially with the march just seeing that and hearing about how it's come together and the direct impact it's had on treatments so, yeah, so you got involved in, you'd already been involved in the march, but then he had the dramatic improvement and it just kind of fueled your passion in a different way. So it kind of proved the story. Proved the story, exactly. Well, the icing on the cake. Saying. Yeah. So what year was that? 2010 was 2010. when a was approved. October okay. 31st, 2010, I think. A approval. <laughs> I remember those emails. Yeah, I bet you do. I remember reading, I forget some of that time period, but um, yeah, I remember feeling hopeful, like for a, the first time in a while. Yeah, maybe... well, I had Novartis had asked me to come and speak mm-hmm. to them Fabulous. A, little bit, a little bit before that to talk about Griffin's experience and, and feeling, you know, it's one of those, you have to practice your language because what I call a side effect, you know, for them, FDA side effects are just the negative things. And I was talking about all the side benefits that Griffin was Oh, okay. <laughs> it was like, okay, I got to flip the language a little bit. Oh, so you but couldn't, so, yeah, you, you had to change had, it. Yeah, got it. Yeah. But so it was kind of, it was kind of cool to I bet. Like, just be there like right on the edge of knowing something really wow. good could happen. And it was kind of stunning. I didn't know a lot about FDA approvals, but 
apparently it was really stunning to have them approve even provisionally a medication for a rare disorder based on a 25 person trial in only a phase two. Uh, it was pretty, you know, it was stunning results. Everybody yeah. in the trial I'm, had good results. And so that yeah. is amazing. And I did, I had a job working for a pharmaceutical research company early in my twenties or mid twenties. And I got to see like the pro they do research for some phase of clinical trials, but it was unbelievable. Like, you know, how many of the drugs that they present research on just got tossed aside. I mean, I had this new understanding of how hard it was. So that is crazy. 25 people. Yeah. So it's pretty cool. Hello, Joe from TSC Talks. This is the point in the podcast where you turn over the record and listen to part two. Thanks for tuning in. Bye. So you were involved with the TS Alliance with the March, and what are your other roles there, or how has that kind of come along? Well, I heard your talks with Katie and Kari. Yeah. And Kari mentioned, you know, the very first time when it was just a handful of people. And it was at that time, the community alliances were just beginning to get established, so there weren't as many of us. Uh, but we were invited to come to Washington, D.C. to advocate for this fund. Right. And it was the first time that the alliance decided to bring in people like that. And Will Cooper, you've heard of him yes. from California. Yes. So Will Cooper called me. Because he was on the board. and um, So it was a lot smaller as far as the network of volunteers. Oh, for sure. Because we no. could all stand up at dinner when we had dinner. Really? You know, we were in a small room. We all introduced ourselves. Oh, that's funny. And even after the March on the Hill, I mean, it was a small enough group that we were we could all sit in the bar. And I think the, chair, the chairman of the board got stuck with the bar bill, but he was able to manage that. I mean, it was that small enough. <laughs> got it. Got it. That's, yeah, I would watch and I'd be like, I, you know, I just couldn't do that at that point in my life. But so it was a small group. But so anyway, so Will called yeah. me to explain what I was supposed to do. Yeah. You know, so I got the general concept. I'm supposed to call my congressman, get an appointment and go to Washington. Uh-huh. And he said, okay, well, so you got your two senators and you got your congressman. And, and he started going into, you know, where, what their roles were, you know, cause at that time I had two senior senators and I had pretty, some pretty senior Congress people as well, uh-huh. you know, and, so he started describing their roles in the government and where they were on committees. And so I thought, wow, I don't know a lot more about this. Holy mackerel, just, yes. I just <laughs> call them up and ask them for an appointment. So I thought, all right, I am the, the Community Alliance Chair for the state of Arizona, so I'll try and get some appointments with these other Congress people too. Not just mine, but other the rest states. Of them. No, no, not other states, just within the state of Arizona, because I figured there were other people who were supposed to be coming to cover their states, right? So then we go to Washington, and we have our little collection of appointments, and Katie can tell you the, oh, maybe she wasn't there when we started it, but the mechanics of the, you know, how appointments were tracked and everything, I was like, you know, might as well write them down on a cocktail napkin. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's like no, nowhere near what it is now. In fact, I don't even know how what kind of work goes into that but yeah but it, but it was that's really, how it started it was grassroots yep. it was that's it was beautiful pulling together and going and so we went and we did our appointments and we came back and we talked about our results 
And for me, coming from Arizona in March to go to Washington, D.C., it's kind of like, if I'm going to come here, (laughs) I want to make good use of my time. Absolutely. And so sat around and talked with a few other people, other community alliance chairs about, you know, what can we do with this? How could it happen? Because it's it's an expensive undertaking for the alliance. And so you have to think about how do you best use resources But anyway, so we talked about it and we said, you know, there's really no reason why we can't figure out a way to contact every office one way or the other. And it was uh, Jim Hobley Mm -hmm. from Minnesota was kind of my key partner in crime. And we operate in very different ways. How so? Well, so like I was the we're going to schedule as many appointments as we can person. Uh And and he was the. I'm going to start at the top of a building and work my way down from every office. Cold so like, calling. Re- oh, okay. So like really th- thorough. Well, no, I mean, he was, he just had a different system of how to do it. Okay. And so, but that actually turned out to be complimentary because we mm-hmm. kind of thought, all right, not every volunteer is going to work the same way. And so then the key point was I had to ask Kari. She was, she was in a different position. She was over the community alliances at that time. So I asked Kari. I said, can you even get enough folders for us? <laughs> you know, this, is, this is the key issue. Is That's is hilarious. This, well, no, is this expense going to be worth it? Can you pay and assemble, uh, you know, for enough folders? And then our challenge was, too, we couldn't even carry all those folders to the hill. So we had to have an office on the hill where these folders could all be dropped uh-huh. off because uh-huh. we couldn't we couldn't carry around these heavy boxes because there were so many offices to go to. Oh my to goodness, it's mind boggling. That we didn't have people going to. But so With- this was the system. Then we exchanged phone numbers. So, you know, if if Will Cooper was over on the Senate side and said, Hey, I need two more Senate folders, can somebody run them over? We could have <laughs> somebody go to the office and get two more in exchange. And so we were always, you know, who has a spare folder for this or for that? So it really was at that point kind of a logistics thing. Yes. Of all right, how can we do this with the manpower? And then we began think taking it further to the all right. Just calling on Arizona wasn't filling my day anyway. Uh-huh. So where else can I go? And so I have a lot of cousins in a lot of different states. Mm-hmm. And so my, my first thought, yeah, so my first thought is, okay, so I'll call on Maine because my sister's there and nobody's calling on Maine. It's like, okay, we'll do that. Maine. So that was one way of looking at it. Then the other way of looking at it was, what are key offices that we aren't getting into? regardless uh-huh. of what state they are, you know, where where are people in power we aren't getting into? Well, and then by coincidence, that happened to be people in Hawaii and Alaska at the time. So those were the three states I think I started with when I started going out of Arizona that I called on. Uh-huh. And just to show that it was possible. I mean, I didn't have any in with these Right, you couldn't offices. say you were from their state, so. And we hadn't yet gotten to where we were systematically trying to get letters from constituents <laughs> or things like that. Yeah, I'm just like, I can't even picture it, how we're, complicated it must have been. Well, we're just kind of thinking like, okay, what can we do next? Yeah, what yeah, can yeah. can we do more? 
you know, and then like the first time when we had all the folders and we stood kind of at the back of the dinner and said, oh, we have this idea. <laughs> Would all you guys, when you go to the Hill, could you like take 10 more extras? And, and here's a list of offices we'd like you to just drop in on. And so, so people stepped up and uh-huh. said, oh, okay, we're game for that. And I think then as we began to have experiences, you know, positive experiences, mm-hmm. we would learn, we would do the feedback and say, oh, okay, this is how we do it better. But it was good to go kind of naively into it uh-huh. because didn't bother me to walk into the chairman of the appropriations committee office and ask if anybody could. You weren't intimidated me. in any way. <laughs> like, Wow, right. This is this is the senator from Alaska, and I'm just looking for his staff member. Can I talk to somebody? And mm-hmm. then, voila, somebody came out. And I think that's something that we need to always keep in our volunteers is that we are just genuine in what we're asking. And yes. We we just genuinely want to be able to talk to you about this issue and why it's important and how you can help. And that's part of our overall effectiveness. But as people began to, over the years, more and more people started to embrace the concept Uh that if you were the Community Alliance chair of XYZ, you covered that territory, that state or that group of states. And then if you, you were a board member, perhaps you came in earlier than just the board meeting, and you could also do that. It wasn't just all on the shoulders of the community alliance chairs. And then as we began to talk more, social media, what have you, then people who weren't necessarily in a leadership role yet with the alliance hadn't volunteered mm-hmm. yet. Mm-hmm. Then they said, well, can I come to Washington? And I was like, yeah, come on down. Uh-huh. So it kind uh, of opened it up a little. And getting more and more people and regulars and going to where it made sense and to where we didn't need that office on the hill anymore. <laughs> because we had enough people to take their own folders <laughs> to the offices that we began to share strategies on well, how do you get into the office? What is it do you say to them once you get there? You know, so it's kind of evolved that? over oh, time. Sure. Yep. It's got to be that process. Uh huh. Well, from a, you know, complete new person, it kind of like was fed to me in steps that I could handle. You know, I didn't feel like a sense of panic, like, oh, I'm walking up there and yeah, so. <laughs> so that's good. I mean, that's not until I got there, not until the day of. Then there was a sense of panic. But <laughs> before well, that's, that, that's a consideration that when we bring someone new in, we don't want them to be overwhelmed. We want them to have a positive experience, a positive and productive experience. Uh, but obviously, we still are an organization of limited resources, mm-hmm. so. We want the the people to do the best they can. Right. So, like, you came as a representative for Massachusetts, but the community alliance that you're in actually also represents Maine and New Hampshire. I wondered about that. But, no, there's common sense involved here. So we say, okay, Jill's not going to be able to go to all those offices in a day. It's like asking a little too much. So fortunately, we have a board member who lives in Maine. Okay. He's he's happy to take on Maine. Then for the other two states, you know, I know 
It happened to be that our representative from Alaska, her husband's family's from Vermont. Oh, okay, so I was going to say my partner's from Vermont. So <laughs> no, so we were Mental able to note. that Vermont handled. You know, we use the resources of who's been there. In years I wondered how you did that because I know Allison is the community chair, and all I got was math. So I figured there was somebody you figured it out. <laughs> Right. I mean, I never want to tell a community alliance chair that they can't do all their offices. But when you look at what the territory is and the number of offices physically is, you know, help is always welcome. Mm -hmm. And when we have constituents that are able to go to those states, you know, it makes sense. Absolutely. It gets coordinated that way. And so then as we go on, different challenges arise as we get larger groups of people coming, Uh the the coordination. Like for you, it was easy in Massachusetts. You know you were the person. Right. So you didn't have to see with someone else calling that office. Right. But say when we're working with Texas and we have multiple people coming, we have to kind of divide it up. Okay, who's going where and how and what happens when you have overlapping appointments or conflicting times? And so each state kind of begins to develop their method. Mm-hmm. <laughs> wow. It's fascinating how it's evolved and just how much the TS Alliance, this is like such a big part of what they do and why they've been successful is really people like you and just kind of step by step. Well. And keeping it grassroots, if we tried to make everyone get their appointments in exactly the same way or do their meetings in exact, if you over-regiment it or require too much, you lose Yes, the it's a thin line. Yeah, and so, I mean, I know uh, Kari mentioned it about there are many larger organizations that will employ a company to That's schedule so appointments for them. No, I've participated in those. Have, kinds well, of no, I get it. I, but I think that that is the success of the, cause I've heard that from people, staffers saying just what you said. We like you because. Yeah, we're not lobbyists. Yeah, right. <laughs> although, right. although we could probably give some lobbyists a good run for their money. Yes, you, I, a lot of you could. I was pretty much <laughs> drooling by the end of the um, appointment and hoping that I could form words. No, but I mean, we've, we've had good guidance, experienced people have guided the effort and they've, you know, the alliance staff, Kari in particular, embraces new ideas so we can try things and go outside the box and move it forward. But I think it's just a bunch of crazy people saying, yeah, why not do 40 appointments a day? Why not? (laughs) It is. I've thought like the nature of managing TSC kind of calls out some really exceptional qualities in people. So in some ways, it doesn't surprise me. And Kari gets that. She really is very relatable and approachable, and she's not afraid to talk about her own struggles, you know, or yeah. stand above in, in like a kind of superior way or some kind of ego trip. There's no ego trips. That's part of it. Yeah. I mean, the whole government advocacy story, I liken it to the stone soup where there wasn't 
one single action. So mm-hmm. it, we had the boiling water and somebody threw a rock in it and said, we're going to make soup out of this. And no one person had everything necessary. Mm-hmm. But we threw in some carrots and then somebody brought it, you know, say will cooper brought the beef and we threw in some (laughs) other thing and we started throwing it and eventually it started cooking and turning into this really great soup we've got going yeah but the ingredients still keep changing because each year you know volunteers will be different and and ingredients change or Uh new ideas come up somebody's got a a little more spice that they want to add to it or, or you know whatever but as long as you keep it so it's participation and it, it isn't all about one person. Right. I always say, I always say it's all about Griffin. <laughs> right. Well, well, of course, of course it is. I absolutely this is, agree. This is, this is all we're talking about here is we got to make things. I think every parent would say that about why they're there. You know, I think it, yeah, exactly. So it's that whole process. Uh, and then, yeah, I have know. a question. How okay. do you, like, if you're getting ideas from all these people, I mean, how do you, filter through that kind of to the ones that might be managed I mean is it is it very obvious or because that sounds like a lot like you're taking feedback from your entire constituents and I don't know about other people but I have an opinion about everything and feel strongly so that's tough well so in terms of the government advocacy there's kind of a clear setup It's pretty so yes there is Well you've true. got the board of directors so the board of directors is key in having the government relations committee that really determines how we're going to approach it each I year. see I see So it's at that level that they secure the co-sponsors for each level they review the documents that we're going to take to uh, the Hill with the guidance of Mark Veith in there. Like, okay, here's the climate on the Hill. Here's when did he come on and how did that happen? I just am curious. Because uh, that seems like Mark, a really good role to have someone in. I, he was not the first year, maybe the second year. Okay, so for that long. Yeah, he's been Very with cool. us a long time. We don't let him go. No, 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 sir. No, it's it's good. And I think he enjoys working with us. uh, It seems the energy's great. Well, he's written a couple of pieces about working with a nonprofit advocacy group and the reputation that we, the TS Alliance volunteers, have on the Hill, that we're professional, Mm -hmm. we're informed, we're persistent, we're passionate, and we don't know why not. Yeah. Because he was actually, he was standing outside the office. When I was preparing to walk in on the, the Alaskan senator's office, he was standing outside going into another meeting and he said to me, he goes, you know, what you're doing is really brave. And I'm like, well, no, I didn't. <laughs> I know. I, I guess I just, I just don't get to, that. I just needed to do this. And he goes, well, it's, it's a good thing. He goes, you guys are doing a really good thing. I'm like, okay, well, we'll just keep doing more of it. You know, just keep guiding us on, uh-huh. on what Washington rules are, mm-hmm. what direction. Like the insider kind of peak. It was just kind of point me toward it and I can go like a guided missile to it. So when, <laughs> when Will, no, it was Will Cooper. 
And Mark Veith said, well, this guy's the chair of the Appropriations Committee, and this one's there. And then at that time, too, on the House side, it was a Wisconsin congressman that happened to be the chair of the Appropriations Committee. So I'm cool with that. I mean, I... I go into those guys. Yep. I probably know who their cousins are or something. It's all like, let's go. Let's talk to them. That's what they're elected to do is listen to us, right? True. But it's, it's energizing in that respect. And I love taking new people to the Hill and seeing things through their eyes. I, I bet. So, so they can say, whoa, this is like this or that. Um, I don't know what I would have done if I didn't have Renee with me. Cause yeah, I would have been lost. She just kind of kept pointing me along. But that's, that's just an important, that's another thing that happens kind of at the board committee level after we ask people over and over and over, send us your appointments, send us your appointments. We do a review of all those appointments. Well, you know, I. Right, because then you reached out and you're like, you can't do that. And I kind (laughs) of knew that. I was waiting for that, but my process was I'm just going to go, go, go and get these scheduled and somebody will bump me. Well, no. So that was that was excellent. What you did was excellent. Because then I gave you like three choices. Of, yep, you know, here perfect. Are three things you can. That's a do. lot, though, to to navigate. Like for, I'm just thinking of you having to do that for everybody. It really, again, Griffin's not that great a sleeper, so I don't sleep either. Yeah. So I, I get just it. go. Well, no. Katie and I have gone over this list so many times, really? and, we, and we look at things, and we have wow. periodic calls and say, okay, how are things going? Uh-huh. You know, uh-huh. the Facebook group is helpful because I get a sense, you know, are they moving along? You know, do I need to poke something? Can I help with an appointment? <laughs> you know, we've done different strategies in different states. When Texas didn't have enough people to cover all their offices, you know, then we had Someone from Nevada did appointment scheduling, and we were able to find a Texan in Washington, D.C., who could come in and do the appointments. I so see. There's always some strategy going on to, okay, how can we get it? I know they think I'm kind of crazy sometimes when I say, if you're offered an appointment, book it, and we'll figure out how to get there and who to get there. Well, that um, came across because I, I kind of went by that, like, okay. <laughs> You can do it then, as long as it's, you know, not at the same exact same time. I'm just, I'm just taking it. I'll figure it out later. Well, yeah, and you, you did a great job. The way, I mean, you had one extra crossover <laughs> because you couldn't get. When I got sentences. there, I was like, I don't even know how I'm going to do this. You know, how could I have ever expected to do the other? But you know, you can't know about it until you see it. It's like having a baby kind of thing. Well, that's just it. And then with with new people, that's why we try to do a call or two with them. All helpful. Exchanges and just say, okay, how are you feeling about it? This is crazy. You don't want to do that, but here's something else you can do. So we that's a an ongoing process throughout the you know January, February. We're looking at the list and looking at where do things need help and and you have uh, a survey out. There's a survey. I've got to do it. Do you get a lot of feedback from that? The follow-up survey, survey on what? On the March. On our, just, I got an email with a survey attached to, you know, answer questions. Yeah, I didn't see one that was specifically about the advocacy component. Oh, I think that's, that's true. more about the, the training. Okay. Needs. Yeah, I haven't read through it. Okay. So that's about yeah. the training. Okay. So, yeah, so, well. Yeah. But we look for feedback mm-hmm. all the time. Kate of course. Is great at just absorbing feedback and, you know, they're, 
been a handful of people that have said, I'm never doing this again. Really? <laughs> and well, it's not everybody's cup of tea. Honestly, it's not my natural, uh, I don't know how to put it, but I think it's just I haven't had a lot of experience, you know, in government stuff. So I'm very tongue tied. I don't understand it. I've never thought about it. I have skills in other areas. So I can see why someone might just be like, that's just too much. And that's fine. The volunteer now is not a volunteer that you just put in a box and say they all have to be the same and they all have to do the same things. People volunteer in different ways. So I always say, let's play to your strengths. What do you really like to do and, and what are you good at? Mm-hmm. That's where mm-hmm. where you fit in. And if right. you want to take it, take it. I new think experience. it's phenomenal. All the volunteer opportunities that do require really a degree of, you know, it's challenging. It's not just writing out thank you notes and sending out business cards or whatever. It's, it's, you're actually getting some really good skills out of it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's lots of things that go on through the government advocacy initiative from start to finish from, you know, figuring, organizing yourself to begin making appointments, looking at an appointment schedule and, and working it out, actually conducting the meetings, doing some follow up, getting that final yes on a request. It's all different skills, and sometimes it's hard for one volunteer to take it from beginning to end. And so we also look at ways to to support along the way. What else can be done to make this successful? So what are your suggestions? I'm going to ask you a personal question just because I have it. For getting, (laughs) (laughs) for getting the, like I've sent my emails out and I think I've gotten like two responses. It's, do you say keep emailing, start calling? What's, what do you think? Well, you had your meetings, so you have a sense of the reaction you got from right. I think they, pretty much everyone was either going to sign or was leaning towards it, though they're right. And so. Uh, part of it is, you know, knowing how things operate in your state. I definitely send an email now because you've got a deadline now. Right, I know. So, so I'd say every one of them could get the email saying, okay, we know the deadline's this. Do you need okay. any other information in order to get that Good. signature on the letter? Good. I always word my emails. My follow-up emails are all about the assumption that they're signing this letter and they just need all the right information to get it done. (laughs) I never ask, are you going to sign? Okay, that's a good. What else do you need? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, that's helpful. This was this was a rough year for me. I had three offices where the person I talked to on our hill day left the office. Really? Already, you know, went to a different job. Oh, boy. And so I've had to take three offices from ground zero back to, okay. So basically, like, you didn't go there at all and visit them. Well, no, I mean, I had that evidence, you know, so I could say, here. And I already have the relationship because I've been emailing back and forth, so I either know the scheduler or the uh-huh. staff, okay. you know, so I have, I have that, you, have you know, and that's contact. what's important to always share in the emails. Maybe I write a little more folksy email than some of the I examples have given. I've been doing a little more personalization. Um, yeah, because I'm talking to the people. It's right. Like, Lori, I met with you and you said this was going to be a, 
a slam dunk with the congressman. So what do we need to do okay. next? <laughs> right. And then they're, you know, put in a position where the ball's in their court. Well, just so you know, if there's any mechanics, you know, if there's something missing, you know, I send them copies uh, with your colleague. You need letter. any more, right? Why? Well, yeah. I send them the link. Okay. I send them, you know, I, I always have the phone contact numbers for the offices in the body of my email. Yeah. So they don't even have to click on anything else. They can just look at the email and go, Oh, I'm supposed to call Loebsack's office. Oh, that's good. Bam. That's good. And they do it. The, the less, less hunting, the I less see. clicking. The easier, I mean, I'd walk it down there for them if I could be. <laughs> yeah, well, that makes sense. They're probably just getting, you know, if they can do it in a, in one smooth move, then that's the way to go. That's so. the way they'll they'll finally get okay. it done. If it's too complicated, if they have to look too many places, that can make I've it more already, difficult. Now I know why something that I tried didn't work. When I was trying to change the appointments around, I just peppered this one poor guy with emails till he was, I mean, and, and I ended up talking to him. And he didn't remember that he had talked to me, and it just got really complicated. So, got it. <laughs> yeah. Well, and see, I'm looking, <clears throat> excuse me, as I look at Massachusetts, so, you know, like if you haven't gotten your District 8 representative to sign yet, the email there definitely needs to emphasize that he's supported this for the last 10 years. <laughs> okay. Okay. And you don't you don't want it to fall through the cracks. No, no. I keep I have a way of like with my emails making sure that I'm not missing anybody. But yeah, it's a lot of work and just kind of plugging away. It is, and I I can understand how people after the adrenaline high of the hill and that whole gathering. Then mm-hmm. they have to go back home and sit at the computer and go, now I can send all these emails. Well, I think I said it out loud to my boyfriend. I said, oh, I can't believe it. Now I have to go and do this. And it wasn't because I didn't want to. It was just I needed to, like, shift for a minute and remember the focus, you know. Well, and I, that's just the thing. We have to keep the personal contact because literally if just dropping off materials at the office was enough to make them sign – we could hire a couple of teenagers to get that done in an afternoon. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. So it's our personal connection and our follow-up. I mean, even if we've had all the meetings, we can't say, well, Mark, no, can't you call on all those offices we met with and ask them to sign? No, we can't. We're, we're the connection. We're the reason that they're signing the letter. So we've got to keep it going. Uh-huh. So I like to attach a letter or smiling photo of one of their constituents with my follow-up, too. Yes. And I'll say, if you remember, <laughs> we talked about Karen here, and she's waiting to see your signature on the list. Ah, that's good. And then in some cases, I know it's been a talk on the, the Facebook group a little bit. In some cases, you have to ask your constituency there maybe allison would have contacts for massachusetts people and just say can they call oh that's good yeah that could also work with a a phone network people just calling it call the main office number they don't have to call the person you met with they can call the the office and just say you know i'm a a constituent in this reps district and I'd really like to encourage him to sign the Dear Colleague letter supporting TSCRP research. You know, 
give them a few details. Like it's co-sponsored by um, Lobzet and Mullen. And they make notes of all that and they tally all that. They really okay. do. So it can have good impact. Really? Okay. That's another really helpful tip. Yeah, we'll get this up there so people can hear some of these pro tips <laughs> for sure. <laughs> no, there's, yeah. There, there are some people that have just got this down pat. Well, I'm sure some people come already loaded with the knowledge and skill set that they need. So it wasn't me. I can see that there's a lot of people out there that really are geared into that kind of a advocacy. Well, um, and we kind of, we kind of feed on one another. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So one of my other little initiatives. What? <laughs> is patient education. Just as we empower people for the March on the Hill, I believe the TSC community of individuals, whether they have it themselves or they have a loved one with TSC, that we need to raise their scientific literacy. Absolutely. Yeah. Like we need a common core level of knowledge to make mm-hmm. sure that the information on the boards and stuff like that is not misleading and dangerous. Mm-hmm. I mean, and with a complex disorder, you just have to invest in that. So much. I'm so glad that you did that and are doing that because I totally agree. And I don't have the science, the energy science background or anything to do it, but I'm glad that I felt like it was really important that they do that. So that's good to hear. It's good. It's going in a good direction. Oh, excellent. To to raise that up. I think that like identifying people that we've had we've taken our kids to see that have a familiarity with TSC. They should start thinking about some kind of TSC label, like I am TSC friendly, you know, I treat TSC patients. And so then it's like a circle loop and then they can go on if they want to be identified as TSC friendly or TSC knowledgeable. And that badge may come to mean something in the future. They can go take a little like, primer course that Dina or somebody puts together and they could go through it and then they'll have then like someone in the communities for instance like a dentist that we use that like I took my son to um get his wisdom teeth out and the dentist looks at his chart and he's like oh I remember he saw he was on sirolimus he's like oh I remember this back in medical school and people are interested because they don't Mm -hmm. see us every day but like there's just you know there's just so many times we're reinventing the wheel and over explaining ourselves and yeah well, and blah, again, blah, blah. It, it goes back to our problem of variability. Yeah. Because the the dentist who saw the TSC patient who just had a problem with pits versus the dentist who addresses a patient who has autism spectrum disorder and all kinds of sensory issues in dealing with their TSC, they're going to have different experiences. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that adage of if you know one person with autism, you know one person with autism, yeah. it's so true too for TSC. Yeah, it really is. It really is. You can try and get a general idea. Yeah. Yeah. But, and then, then it might be too, that's like a little dangerous knowledge. <laughs> you think, yeah, well, you know, it's, it's like, like your experience, you know, government advocacy is far simpler than dealing with TSC. But you said, well, we kind of gave you a step at a time and maybe mm-hmm. it would have been overwhelming to tell you everything all at once. I probably would have not wanted to do it. 
<laughs> and to be so honest. PSC doctors, uh, they may treat yeah. us that way too sometimes. Good point. They don't always give us all the information we're hungry for right away. You know, I was one of those people that I just wanted to know everything there was to know immediately. Bad, I did too. Different. But other people like, I just want to deal with the problem I have right now. And then I'm going to stage in learning about this other stuff. And, huh. and so we all have different ways of figuring it out. So that yeah. maybe as we begin to be able to carry more of our information in a digital format, good, that good point. that easier. Yeah. We can start loading them up. But then there's still, you can't make them read it all. Right. Yeah, lots of challenges there. For this sure. whole transition to adulthood thing is kind of giving me a headache. Tell me. I could probably <laughs> talk for another hour to you about that, but uh Yeah. I don't know how I'm going to do it. Yeah, I did it with one, and it's been bloody, but it, we'll see. And then each one after won't be the same. They'll have They're all own. different. They're all different. <laughs> Shared living. I don't know whether my son could do that. And then my other daughter, she'll be independent in some level. So it's like, and there's no roadmap, but it's yeah. helpful to have the community, that's for sure. So, yeah. And Anyways. I think we're getting more and more ways that it can share experiences uh, improves that too. I think so. I agree. Well, I guess I'll wrap it up here. <laughs> Do you have enough? <laughs> I have plenty. Amazing. Amazing. Just really inspired. So really grateful. Yeah.